Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. In this journey of the spiritual gifts, uh, according to the United Methodist Church's spiritual inventory, which we've invited you to take for yourselves, we've uncovered multiple gifts, but one of the gifts that we're going to talk about today is so well embodied in this woman that comes into our gospel account. Now, in the gospel account of Matthew, she's referred to as a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites have ceased to exist in that term. Just like at this point, God's people are no longer calling themselves Israelites, they're calling themselves Jews. And in a post-Babylon exilic world, that's what's happening. And yet when she arrives, she's referred to in this gospel account as a Canaanite. In the oldest gospel account, Mark, she's called what was probably more accurate by the political name Syrophoenician. And this is her region. Jesus has left a centrally Jewish region and has traveled to a region of Gentiles. The fact that we're getting this name Canaanite is intentional. It's meant to highlight for us that these people were the classic, ancient, long-standing enemies of God's people. They are spoken about repeatedly, especially being proclaimed the enemies of God's people in the book of Deuteronomy. And then there are multiple accounts in the next books of the Old Testament, especially in Joshua, of battling these people for possession of the promised land. Canaanite was a blanket term that was used for any of the different peoples that were living within the borders of the promised land. And so anybody who was a Canaanite was instantly not your friend, not your neighbor. This was somebody who stood in stark opposition to you and there was no middle ground. This is a woman who should not be approaching the Jewish Messiah. This is a woman who should not even know the terms that she is using, Lord, son of David. And yet here she is. And she, like a number of people throughout all four gospel accounts, have come to Jesus. And according to Jesus, it is her faith that brings her there. She comes to him, and unlike a lot of the Jews that he encounters, who might be so gracious as to refer to him as rabbi, teacher, sometimes if they're looking for something, they'll call him good teacher, but by and large, people do not use these respectful terms when they talk to Jesus in the gospel accounts, but she does. She calls him Lord, son of David, acknowledging his place in the messianic prophecy, and she says to him, have mercy on me. My daughter is tormented by a demon. And she has approached Jesus believing that he can, because he is merciful, help her daughter, her beloved child. But Jesus doesn't answer her at all. He doesn't shrug. He doesn't send her away. He speaks no word to her. There's nothing. And then we see what the disciples think about all of this. The disciples who have been gathered for ministry, that's why they exist in our gospel accounts. Their whole purpose was to follow Jesus, to learn to emulate him, and then to carry on the ministry once he ascends. These apostles, they say to Jesus, send her away. She keeps shouting after us. She's obnoxious, she's persistent, she's annoying. Send her away. Not 
Heal her daughter so she'll leave us alone. Send her away. Maybe it's because they know who she is. Maybe it's because they recognize that she is definitely not one of them and their people. But Jesus turns and says, I have come for only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this gospel account, he's acknowledging that he was sent to God's people to bring them home to God. But then she comes and she kneels before him. She takes a physical posture of humility and she says for the second time, Lord, help me. And he says to her, and what many Christians have a very difficult time reconciling, something that seems very callous, something that seems cold and very unchristlike, he says to her, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now, a lot of Christians get very uncomfortable when Jesus says this in this gospel account, understandably so. Is he really calling this woman a dog? What is happening here? And then she will not be deterred. For the third time, she will say, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She is so convinced by her faith that he can help her and thus help her daughter that she will not be deterred. She will not take silence. She will not take other people being an obstacle. She will continue to push forward because so many times in this short text, she has a barrier, an obstacle. Sometimes it is silence. Sometimes it is other human beings, other followers of Jesus who become a barrier to her. And even the words from Jesus, which don't seem to reconcile with what we think about our Lord and Savior, she will have none of it. Her faith will not be swayed. And so finally Jesus says, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Her faith is so great that Jesus remarks about it. I wish I had some kind of commentary about what the disciples thought after he gave her that superlative, great is your faith. Because faith is a powerful gift. We don't always think about that, but it is actually a gift. According to the spiritual inventory, the gift of faith is more than belief in Jesus Christ, but an abiding foundation of confidence that God works all things together for good and that the people of God can rise above any obstacle. Faith is the bedrock upon which we build lives, congregations, and communities. People with the gift of faith hold fast to the deep conviction that no matter what we see with our eyes, we can trust the promises and plan of God. And this is exactly what this woman was living into. She was not one of them. She was not one of the inner circle. She was apparently not one of the children of Israel or the children of God, but she believed with all that she was that Jesus alone could make a difference for her child. And she has journeyed there and she will not let her faith be swayed. And if you've ever had one of those moments in your life where you have turned to God in prayer, sometimes out of desperation because of what is happening in your life or in the world, and then you know that sometimes we experience a little bit of what she is experiencing in the story. The first time you pray, you just may have silence. You don't feel a strong response, neither from within you or from without, but you cannot stop. You pray again, Lord, help me. And this time, you do it with a posture of humility. 
You do it with a way in which you are beseeching God, knowing that only God can help you in your time of need. And then the third time comes, and maybe you didn't get the answer you wanted, maybe you didn't get the answer you expected, but if you persist with your faithfulness, God provides. And this is what this woman experiences, and her experience is a lesson to all of us, to keep the faith. And that we have people who are gifted with that gift. Now all of us are called to have faith, but some of us have been gifted with it, and it's a faith that does not fail. It's almost irrational, because you can experience all kinds of hurt and betrayal and tragedy in this world, and yet some people never shake or quiver in their faith. And you wonder, why is that? How can they do that? Because that's their gift. They are anchored to the firm foundation. And sometimes those are the people that we cling to when we don't feel that we are stable or we don't feel that we have a firm grasp on things or we are starting to feel blown around by the circumstances of our lives. These are the people to which we cling. And they are complemented by people who have the gift of evangelism. Faith is usually strengthening the church from within and evangelism is strengthening the church from without. The gift of evangelism is the gift of faith sharing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those we meet. Evangelism is primarily a one-to-one or small group experience grounded in building relationships with others and inviting them to make a decision for Christ. Gifted evangelists do not force their faith on others, but offer relationship with God as a gift and are ready to tell the story of God and Christ in their own lives. I know that a lot of people get uncomfortable when you start using the word evangelism or evangelist. I know that there's been some historical context to that which makes some of us feel very uncomfortable. No one is asking anybody with this gift to go door to door and knock and ask people if they found Jesus. That's not what we're doing. We're not here trying to save thousands of souls in one day. This is some of the language that you hear associated with these terms. Instead, evangelism is someone who has been gifted with invitation. There are people in our lives that we love, and maybe they're only in one sphere of our lives. Maybe it's a family member or it's a friend from a different context than a friend or a family member from another side. And if you've ever had that experience where you're like, I really love this person, and I really love and enjoy this person, and wouldn't it be great if we could all be together? If we could all come together and establish a relationship like that, wouldn't that be amazing? And then you have people that are able to facilitate this by inviting each one to be in relationship with each other because of the relationship that they have with them. Evangelists are doing the same thing for God. They are inviting people to experience the God that loves them, has redeemed them, that they love and serve, that they know, and that they revel in. It's inviting people into a relationship with God. Let me introduce you to God. Let me introduce you to the God that I know and love, that you too might experience how wonderful this is. And that's what an evangelist is doing. We're all called to testify, but there are people who lead the way and show us what it's like to use our words and our experiences and our gift of invitation and hospitality to invite others. Because otherwise, how would we continue to help people find their way back to God? We need these people. We need them because both faith and evangelism are witnessing gifts. They witness and tell the story, not only of the gospel, but of God in their lives, in their congregations, in their churches, in their communal context. These are the personal stories that continue to build the church. 
and we need them. Now, faith is my number two gift. And when I got it, it was kind of like, oh, that doesn't sound really like glamorous at all, right? Faith. Well, I would hope I have faith or I have no business being clergy. I would hope that, you know, I have faith. But the more that I thought about it, the more that it was true. I've experienced a lot of things personally and professionally in my 43 years. I have experienced um, personal relationships that have been broken. I have experienced betrayal in my personal relationships. I've experienced lots of hardship. And even when it's happened within the church or within my colleagues or within the denomination, never once did I think that God wasn't with me or present or real. That never happens. I've had to question my belief in people, but I have never questioned my belief in God. And that's important because if someone comes to me and wants to ask hard questions, if somebody is having a crisis of faith, if somebody is starting to question, you know, I was raised in this, but I'm just not sure. I'm going through this period, and I'm just not sure anymore. That, those are the kinds of people that I love to talk to because I can go to those places with you and not have to worry that it's going to destroy my faith. I don't have to do that. Because I know, first of all, I can't deny God. I've tried a couple times in my life, and God won't have it. So I know that God is real. And I know that the same kind of relationship that God has gifted to me is what God is gifting to other people. God wants us to be in relationship. And as United Methodists and those of us in the Wesleyan tradition, we believe first and foremost that God is a God of grace. Yes, God is omnipotent, but God is a God of grace first. Yes, God is omnibenevolent, but God is a God of grace even before that. And we believe that everything starts with grace. And if everything starts with grace, then what we understand is that we are going to have moments where we feel completely normal human emotions. We are going to get angry. You can get angry at God. God's big enough, God can handle it. You can be upset, you can be sorry, you can be sorrowful. You can feel guilty, you can feel any of these emotions, and God can take it and take you beyond them to help you get past them. And faith is what helps with that. Faith is what allows us to be bold, to say to God, I'm really struggling right now. I can't see where you're present with me. I don't feel like I am loved. You can say those things because faith lets you know that you are never going to be cast aside or you're going to fall through the ground because God has always got you. And people who have faith that are gifted with that, it also fuels our other gifts. My other two gifts are better because, and more effective because of my gift of faith. Absolutely. I am the most frustrating person probably in the world for an atheist to talk to. Because no matter what they say to me, you're not going to get me to agree that there's no God. Not. And then part of me is like, God, why do they not understand what needs to happen here? Because faith is who we are. It's a belief that God can and will do things. The, I mean, I've been in pastoral ministry since I was 26. I have presided and assisted at a lot of funerals. I've seen more death than anybody who's not actually in the funeral business should have to see. And yet, never have I felt more convinced and convicted that resurrection is real. That these people are not dead and gone, 
The people that we have put in the earth, the people whom we have commended through prayer to God, they are not gone. They are with God right now, surrounded by that grace and that love. And there is nothing in this world now that can be an impediment to those two things. God is holding them in trust and pouring out grace and love on them. And no one will ever convince me otherwise. That is exactly what's happening. And so when we gather at these services of death and resurrection, and I'm looking out at a congregation of people who are just struggling and broken and sad, I'm able to say with all that I am that they have not seen the last of their loved one, that God will restore them because that's the promise, that's the hope, that's the faith that we have. And we need that. We need people who believe. But we also need people who are willing to share and invite. We need the evangelists. We need the people that are strengthening us here, and we need the people that are strengthening us by constantly bringing new people into God's love. The church cannot survive with just one or the other. We need them all. All of these gifts are important to us. And you realize that your faith is here to transform, not just you, not just your personal relationships, not just your household. It's meant to transform much more than that. Yesterday, I was on a Zoom call with one of the students at the University of Virginia. He's part of the leadership team for the Wesley Foundation, which is the United Methodist Church's campus ministry. There's one at almost every college, major college in Virginia, and there's one at UVA, and this young man is a part of that. And he was on the Zoom call with Bob and Leela, who are up here in the choir, and they're also our key coordinators for our Impact Social Justice Ministry. And he had reached out to me, and he said, I understand that you all are a part of Impact and I would like for you all to come and share that with us at our regular Tuesday dinner and program. And I said, okay. And so we arranged to talk to him and we're explaining to him what impact is. And then he says, I went to the Nehemiah action last year. Now I've been to every Nehemiah action since we joined impact. And usually I have something to do um, up on the stage when we are in the middle of the action. Either I, one time I was talking to the mayor of uh, Charlottesville, one time I was offering the devotion, and I think that was the year that he was talking about, last year when I offered the devotion. And so he said, it was so amazing being in that room. I mean, you're talking about 900 people who have gathered to show our elected officials that we believe that they need to make positive change for our neighbors. And it is powerful. I mean, it's amazing to be in a room with that many people, and very few of them actually get the opportunity to speak at a microphone or interact with the elected officials, but yet he had an experience. And when he started talking about that experience, his face lit up. And I could see, and he said, why do we do this? Why do we do social justice? And I'm sure many of us have asked that question. I finally said to him, I said, look, most Methodists and most Christians are pretty good at understanding what Jesus told us in the Gospel account of Matthew. If we see somebody who's hungry, we feed them. If we see somebody who's thirsty, we give them something to drink. If they're a stranger, we welcome them. If they are naked, we give them something to wear. We try to visit those that are sick and in prison. We have kind of heard that and we have internalized it. And so most Christians, when confronted with somebody who says, I am hungry, the question they ask themselves is completely appropriate. How can I feed them? This church has asked that consistently over the course of its life, hence we have Grace Grocery and we have done all kinds of other 
incredible mission work to help meet the needs of people who are suffering and struggling right now. But the call from the prophetic books of the Old Testament is to ask another question after that. Micah and Nehemiah and Isaiah and other prophets are asking us to consider this question. Why are people constantly hungry? Why is it that we can feed hundreds of people every month and yet they're still hungry? What is happening? Where is the brokenness? Where is the disconnect? It is not to ignore feeding them right now and it is not to only focus on a system or circumstances that need to be addressed. It is to do both. To recognize that we have an opportunity to use our faith and our commitment and understanding of Jesus Christ in order to change things for the better. And that's what he saw. That young man saw 900 people, not just Christians, but Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Unitarians and others, gathered together, united to help make this place better. So that maybe, day by day, there will come a day where we won't eradicate people being hungry in Charlottesville and Albemarle County, but maybe we take it from 200 that we have to serve to 100. Wouldn't that be something to celebrate? If suddenly 100 people didn't have to live every month wondering whether or not they were going to have food. If 100 people were finally able to not have that fear of when they got home every day from work about whether or not they could feed their own children. That's the kind of transformation that our faith is being invited to play in this world. And he wanted to be a part of it. He wanted to not only be a part of it, but then, like an evangelist who's gifted, he wanted to invite others to experience it. And he wanted to have what we're getting ready to have here in our church, a listening session, so that these students who had their own perspective and their own encounters and experiences with suffering in Charlottesville and Albemarle County would have the ability to have their voice be heard because you can't fix a problem that you don't know. If you don't know it's a problem, then you can't fix it. And he wants to be part of fixing things. What a great, inspiring moment. And so on Tuesday, Bob and Leela and I are going to go over there and we'll see him face to face, not just through a video screen. And we'll meet others. He says there's about 15 that gather every Tuesday. And they're going to get to hear about what the prophet Nehemiah says, what the prophet Micah says about you should do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. But not just our God. Jesus says that we should walk humbly with each other. That we should walk not only with the believers, but we should walk with those who are suffering, the lost and the lonely, those who don't have enough to eat or drink or wear. We're called to be with those people too. And faith and evangelism are two of the ways that we are able to confront things that are heart-breaking, soul-rending atrocities in our world. Because conversations that are happening all around us, not just in our homes or with our neighbors, our fellow students, our coworkers, the conversations are not hope-filled and inspiring, especially coming up into an election. They're not. But people need to know that long after the secular events of this world come and go, God's love remains. This entire world will one day be washed away. It will not look like this anymore, but God will remain. 
who is and was and ever shall be, is what we sang in the glory of Hatri. And people, they may not understand our faith, they may not understand all the doctrine and the, and the theology behind what we believe, but if we can say with conviction that God loves them and that God will do anything that is necessary to help them and save them, then that's where hope springs. And we are called to be believers and bearers of that hope. That's who we're meant to be. And so you have people who have that gift of faith, and you have people who have that gift of evangelism, and what we're really doing is using the hope that we have inside and sharing it with others. That yes, there are plenty of things that I can't explain. I can't explain why people get cancer. I can't explain why people have tragic deaths. I can't explain why some people become so hopeless that they take their own lives. I cannot explain those things. And I will probably never be able to explain them on this side of the kingdom to come. But I can say with unwavering certainty and faithfulness that God has not loved those people any less. That God loves them and mourns their loss in this world too. And sometimes that's what we need, is to put the God spin on how things happen. That we live in a world where every single human being has been given maximum freedom and choice. And some of us don't use that very well. But God doesn't take it from us. God is working to help us make better decisions, wiser decisions, carefully discerned decisions, so that others won't have to experience all of this pain and suffering. When I was at my last church in Norfolk, there were some of my most vintage women in the church. And we were talking at a women's gathering one time about their lives. And while I only knew most of them while they were in their 80s and 90s, when you start hearing about the things that they have done over the course of their life, it's astounding. I mean, some of them had, were veterans. They had served in World War II. One of them was a code breaker. There were so many incredible things that they had done, but do you know what they treasured the most? And you could tell when they talked how important this was for them. They were a part of changing segregation in Norfolk. And some of them were a part of that because they went to the mayor and they went to the town hall and they stood up and said, enough! This is not who we're called to be. And others sat at the Woolworths counter right next to people who were not supposed to be sitting at the counter to show that they are just like us. We are one. And we all deserve to be here. There was one who had opened up her home to the children that were considered unworthy to go to white schools. And Norfolk refused to integrate at one point, and there were four children who were kept out of school and one of the local churches opened up the church in order for them to go. And there were white churches that helped to bring supplies and food for those children. And what they remember and celebrate the most is that their faith had form. Now they didn't eradicate racism in Norfolk. They didn't completely change the landscape of how people felt in Norfolk. But when they looked at it, it had changed. And there were things that had improved, and there were places where they could see that their risk to themselves, that their willingness to step out of their comfort zone, and their willingness, above all, to put their faith into action 
changed Norfolk. And it changed some people, but it really changed them. Their faith transformed them. And that's what they celebrated. And when I would co-preside at their funerals and you would hear all of the things that they had done in their lives, I made sure that I mentioned that one of the things that they were so glad that they got to do was change the institution and the systems in our town. Because that's where they saw their faith making a difference. And your faith is no less. There are forces in this world that we are battling right now. Forces about who can be loved and who can be accepted and who is equal and who is not. We are battling these forces. But it is our hope and our love and our understanding of a God of grace that makes it possible for there to be transformation in individual people and where we live. And so we need our faith. And just like the Canaanite woman, Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. So ask. Don't just ask once and become discouraged when you don't get a response. Don't just ask twice and then if you feel barriers, give up and walk away. Keep reaching out to God. Hold fast to your faith and to your conviction that God is with you and for you. Because as someone who accounts faith among one of her gifts, I can tell you with all that I am that God is with you and for you. And in the days ahead, may others come to experience that glorious truth because of you. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. <laughs>